Good morning, my family. How are you this morning? How goes the battle, brothers and sisters? Goes well? Good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, here we are, gathered in your name. And Father, we're hungry. Please fill us with the food of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Are you all ready to set sail finally with Paul and Barnabas? Yes? That ship's been sitting in port for too long, hasn't it? Time to set sail from Israel and travel west, and this morning we will. Over the past year or so, hard to believe it's been a year, Maybe to some of you it seems like more, but over the past year or so, we've seen how the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. And we've seen how God, the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, spread that good news in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, to quote Jesus in Acts chapter 1. And now it's time to finish that quote of Jesus. It's time for the good news to officially, at least, spread to the ends of the earth. You see up on the screen a very rough outline of of God's plan to reach the ends of the earth in the first century. He does it primarily through Paul's three or some say four missionary journeys. If you count Paul's trip to Rome at the end as a missionary journey... I say, why not? Paul was every bit as intent as bringing the gospel of Jesus to as every bit as intent to bring the gospel of Jesus to Caesar in Rome as he was to anyone anywhere else. So why not call it a missionary journey? That's God's plan to reach the ends of the earth in the first century, and that's our study for the next few, hopefully months and not years. We'll see what God has in time. We'll see what we can learn about reaching our ends of the earth today as we too strive to bring the kingdom of God in Jesus' name to a world that is desperate for it. Before we jump into our text this morning, let's take a look at the when and the where. When are we and where are we briefly? First, the when. I've got a timeline up there. Many of you will have a flashback to school where you hated those things. But really, they're your friend because they give us a frame of reference. Acts begins the story at or around 30 A.D. That's when Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. You can see the other dates there. One in particular I've put in red for you to look at. It's 16 years after Jesus that Paul goes on his first missionary journey. That seemed like a long time. That struck me as longer than what I thought. But 16 years after Jesus, Paul finally goes out. And if you look, 12 or 13 years after Jesus came to Paul and said, hey, you need to go to the ends of the earth. I'd always thought Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul, you the apostle, and Paul more or less got his things together and went. Now, Twelve or thirteen years later, 
time of preparation perhaps for Paul, a time of study perhaps for Paul, a time of getting to know his new Christian community who would support and help him for Paul. I don't know, but 10 or 12 years later before Paul goes. Let's take a look at the next slide. And you'll see that Acts takes us through about the year 62 A.D. when Paul ends up in house arrest in Rome. So all told, we've got about 32 years that Acts covers historically, from 30 when Jesus was here to 62 when Paul ends up in Rome. And we've looked at the first 16 years, roughly, of the Christian mission in and around Israel. So now we're going to look at the second 16 years, primarily outside of Israel. So that's the when. We're about 46 A.D., 16 years after Jesus. What about the where? As we'll read in a minute, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark start in Antioch. I'll wait for that map to come up. Now, you've got to put my... Thank you. I worked a long time on that. <laughs> Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, they start in Antioch of Syria, and they travel to the port city of Seleucia. There we go. And they go there to get on a boat headed for Cyprus. They start in Cyprus in the city of Salamis, obviously a meat processing city. I love following Gina Shrek because you all laugh at my jokes after... Just kidding, Gina. Good thing she's a good friend. <laughs> they start in the city of Salamis, and they make their way across the entire island of Cyprus to Paphos on the other end. And that's where, as we'll see in a minute, some real fun begins with a Roman ruler named Sergius Paulus and a Jewish sorcerer named bar jesus elimas of all things but we'll get there in a minute so that's the where you see it before you all right with the when and the where in place let's turn to acts chapter 13 beginning at verse 1 in your bibles you can read along to yourself or out loud if you like 13 verse 1 in the church at antioch there were prophets and teachers barnabas simeon called niger lucius of cyrene Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them. That would be John Mark, the author of the second gospel. John Mark was with them as their helper. Let me pause there to ask you a question. Why Cyprus, do you suppose? Why was first stop Cyprus? One answer might be the Holy Spirit said to go specifically there. We read in verse 4 that the Holy Spirit sent them on their way. But whether the exact location was the Holy Spirit's idea or Barnabas and Paul's idea, still why do you think? Why would the Holy Spirit 
and or Barnabas and Paul and John Mark say, I know, let's go to Cyprus first. The Bible doesn't tell us, but maybe one of the reasons was a very practical one. Cyprus is on the way, right? Sometimes we can think a little bit too hard. God sometimes sometimes is very practical and economical, and we're going to go west. Let's get on a boat. Boat stops at Cyprus. Let's talk about Jesus here. Maybe it was just the first stop on the way. It could be. I want to look a little bit with you this morning, or a lot of bit with you this morning, about another possible reason. Two of them, in fact, they're related. Who was from Cyprus? Okay, you got a three-choice, you got a, you got a third shot here. Was it Paul, Barnabas, or John Mark? Barnabas, right. Now, he's from Cyprus, remember? Interesting, and I'm sure you also remember what Barnabas did for a living. George, don't you answer for them. He has such great love and empathy for you. He doesn't like it when I... But I want you to feel a little bit that you didn't know, if you don't know, and I'll tell you why later. What did Barnabas do for a living? Somebody knows. Be bold. He packed meat. (laughs) Actually, his job probably involved butchering. Say it louder. I heard it. He's a priest. He's a Levite. Barnabas is a Jewish priest. Does that ever fully... Now, what does that mean? He's a Jewish priest. He's from Cyprus. At the very least, it means that among the Jewish community, at least at Cyprus, he has some standing. He knows some people there. They respect him as a Jewish priest, as a Levite. Maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark say, you know what, Barney, <laughs> let's, go, let's go to your hometown first where, you know, they know you. Let's start out among family and friends where, it, you know, they'll listen to this and let's see how it goes. Now, along those same lines, his history records that there was an unusually large Jewish population in Cyprus. We'll talk about why a little bit later. The historian Philo noted that Cyprus was full of Jewish colonies, he writes. Now, I wonder if that played into the decision to go to Cyprus first. We just read something in the text that the fact that Jews are around in Cyprus seems to be significant. What did we read? Where do Paul and company first go to proclaim the Word of God in Cyprus? I only read six verses. Where? In the Jewish synagogue. As soon as their feet touch dry land, they make a beeline for the synagogue. Now, what is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, doing heading to the synagogue of all places? Indeed, as we go through the book of Acts and Paul's letters in the New Testament, we see a definite intentional pattern emerge. I've listed for you only some of the cities on the slide that we know from the Bible that God goes straight to the synagogue first when he gets to a city during his missionary journeys. Look at the list for purposes of those listening online. You can find in the Bible, in Acts itself, that the first place Paul goes to teach and to argue and debate and to talk about Jesus 
is the synagogue in Damascus, Salamis, where we are today, Pisidian Antioch, where Lord willing will be next week, Iconium, where it's interesting, Luke adds that Paul went as usual to the Jewish synagogue first. Philippi, Thessalonica, he went as was his custom. Berea, Athens, Corinth, he went for every Sabbath, which is significant because Paul spent at least two years in Corinth. In Ephesus, he went for three months, solid when he first got there. So there's a pattern there, it seems. And maybe it chases us back to that question, why? Okay, we see the pattern. We see that he did it in Salamis. Why is he doing this? Why go to the Jew first? What in the world is the apostle to the Gentiles, as Paul is often called, what in the world is he doing spending so much time in Jewish synagogues wherever he goes? Well, for one, and this surprises some people, it surprised me when I went back and looked at it a few years back. I had never seen it in the text. I admit to you, I read right over it. It's what Jesus told Paul to do. You say, where do you get that? Remember Ananias back in Acts chapter 9? Remember him? Three people do over there. Good. Ananias was the guy from Damascus that went to see Paul right after Paul ran into Jesus on the Damascus road when Paul was blind. Remember? And do you remember what Jesus himself said to Ananias about Paul? You see it on the screen. Jesus said about Paul, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings. And I had always stopped reading that and quoting that there. But Jesus goes on. And he's his chosen instrument to carry his name to where? Or to who? The children of Israel. And we often read over that part. We miss that part when we give Paul the title Apostle to the Gentiles. He was, but he was also to be an apostle to the Jews, at least according to Jesus himself. Now, what might going to the Jews in a first century Greek or Roman city, what might make that a good plan to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel? Pretend you're Paul. And so you're known in Jewish circles at least as a Pharisee that studied under the great Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And you're traveling with Barnabas, this big, hulking Jewish priest and Levite. I'll tell you in a few, why, a few weeks why I think Barnabas was a big man. You've seen moose around the building, right? Every time I see moose, are you here, moose? Yeah. I'll make you stand up in a few weeks, not now. I see Moose and I think, ah, that's what Barnabas was like. I'll tell you why in a few weeks. So there you are. You're known as a Pharisee in Jewish circles at least. You're traveling with this big Levite. And your other traveling companion from Judah is John Mark, a Jew from Judah. Kind of sounds like the beginning of one of those jokes, right? So this Pharisee, Levite, and Jew go into a bar... Yeah, maybe the idea that into a bar is funny, but you know, that really works here, guys, because these three went into places that made bars look like the most righteous place on the earth, okay? And so this Pharisee, Pharisee Levite, and Jew go into a bar, 
And they want to convince everyone there that this Jewish rabbi whom Rome crucified as a terrorist, that guy is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And everyone there in the bar needs to repent of all of their sin and accept that Messiah as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, you're Paul. How in the world are you going to do that? Well, here's an idea. How about going first to those folks who already know the Hebrew Scriptures, we call the Old Testament, forward and backward, many of them by heart, who study them day and night in order to apply them to their lives, who already know the story of God and His chosen people and plan of salvation. How about going to those people who have been waiting for, longing for, singing about, dancing about, praying for, sacrificing to God to send the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. How about going to those people? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because really, all you have to do with that group who already know God and His promise to send Messiah, all you really have to tell them is, it's Jesus! Now, as we'll see next week, there's There's more that Paul says to help his fellow Jews make the connections between Jesus and Scripture. But essentially, that's Paul's point. My friends, my fellow countrymen, he says, the Messiah that we've all been waiting for has come, and he's Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus. You try to reach someone in the first century who isn't Jewish with that message, you tell a Gentile that Jesus is Messiah, they're likely to ask something like, oh, what's a Messiah? <laughs> and you've got a much tougher and longer task ahead, don't you? Indeed, why not convince some fellow Jews who are already members respected in the community that you want to reach, and then let those that you convince who believe and accept that Jesus is Messiah, let them spread the word to their communities over time in their relationships as you continue on your way. Think about this. Do you suppose that when God sent Babylon to conquer Judah some 600 years before Paul, do you suppose God had Paul in mind? Do you suppose he had Acts 13 in mind? What do I mean by that? I wonder if God thought, hmm, 600 years from now, I'll begin establishing my church to the ends of the earth. Sure would help if my chosen people were scattered throughout the known world so when the gospel got there, it would get a leg up. And so God sends Babylon to conquer Judah. Yeah, and Babylon thinks, we are deciding to do this. <laughs> no. God in His providence and sovereignty allows Babylon to conquer Judah. And what happens? Jews scatter throughout the world. The historian Josephus tells us by that by the first century... Over that 600 years, here's a quote from Josephus. Jews are already gotten into all cities. And it is hard to find a place in the habitable earth. Had to practice habitable. It's hard to find a place in the habitable earth that hath not admitted this tribe of men and is not possessed by them. Wow. They're everywhere, waiting, 
for the good news to get there. God put that part of the plan, have Jews all over the known world, God put that part of the plan in motion at least 600 years before. Isn't God amazing? And what a brilliant plan to go to the Jews first. And you know what? Paul follows that plan almost everywhere he goes. And the long and the short of it is, you and I today know Jesus as a result. Now to be sure, not every Jew believed. And the ones who didn't believe got progressively nasty with Paul, as we'll see. But the Bible tells us over and over again that many Jews believed and were instrumental in the growth of the early early church. Absolutely brilliant, this plan of God's to reach the Jew first and then the Gentile. God ends up recruiting far more of Abraham's descendants than only Paul to help spread the word about Jesus. I can forget that sometimes. Maybe you do too. We, we owe a debt of gratitude not only to Paul, not only to the Gentile Christian martyrs who died for their faith, but also to all of those first century Jews who believed in Jesus, left their homes, sacrificed their all, including their lives, and helped spread the word of Jesus the Messiah. That's really my first point from our passage this morning. As we follow Paul around the world, as we look into the beginnings of the church international, notice as we travel these next few months how the seed and the roots of Christianity are deeply planted in Jewish soil. Notice how our Christian roots are Jewish to the core. Every respected scholar at least agrees that the earliest early church at least was almost all Jewish. Did you know that? In no small part because that's who Paul targeted to help spread the good news. And spread it they did. And for that, I, for one, am very grateful, eternally grateful, in fact. Now, why might that be important? Why is it important for us to appreciate the Jewish nature of our Christian heritage? It's a big question, far too big for one morning. We'll tease out some answers as we travel through the rest of Acts. But in a nutshell, and that's a pretty big nutshell, but in a nutshell, when we study the Jewish context of our faith, we discover some amazing things about the culture that God chose to first reveal Himself. And more than reveal Himself even, we discover some amazing things about the culture that God Himself chose to become in some way when Jesus, God himself, was born a baby Jewish boy, fully human and a Jew. Think of it. God could have chosen any time in any culture in the history of man for his son to become. He chose this one. Why? In my opinion, There must be something there in that culture that God deeply loved. And when it was made perfect in Jesus, in my opinion, there's something there for us to help us learn about what it means to be Christian. Not Jewish, but to be Christian in our life and witness today. The time we have left this morning, let me share with you two things 
that an appreciation of our Jewish roots helps us to see from our text this morning. But before we get there, we need to leave the synagogue in Salamis and travel with Paul to Paphos. So I'm going to begin reading again, chapter 13, book of Acts, verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus. Not the Jesus you and I know as Lord and Savior. Jesus was a very common name in the first century. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Son of Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, second in command to the council. Proconsul means in the place of the council, a Roman man, Sergius Paulus. He was looking out over the entire island. Roman province of Cyprus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, this is the same individual as Bar-Jesus. Some people in the Bible have lots of names, don't they? Elimas, the sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, Elimas, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So we have here a Jewish lying or false prophet. His name is Bar-Jesus, Elimas the Sorcerer. And he's opposing God and his messenger, Paul. And he is telling lies and trying to lead others away from God's truth. And one of the $64 million questions this morning is, does that scenario sound at all familiar to us? Lying or false Jewish prophets, opposing God and God's messenger, telling lies and trying to lead God's people away from God's true word. Does that sound familiar to us? See, it doesn't surprise me that we don't recognize the story. I've never seen the connection I'm about to make until I studied it this past week. And it kills me that it's taken me that long. We don't recognize the story because we're not taught or inclined to look as much for connections between the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And maybe because we spend, we tend to spend a lot less time learning and studying the Old Testament stories Where else in the Bible does God talk about false or lying prophets and what will happen to them? Where especially? What book? Where? 
Revelation, yes. Let's think Old Testament. What Old Testament book? Jeremiah. Blessed are you, son and daughter of your father and mother, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your father who is in heaven. Amen? See, everybody's happy now. Someone got it right. Jeremiah. Jeremiah had his hands full with false and lying prophets, opposing God and opposing Him like crazy, and keeping God's message, true message, from getting through to the people who were in exile out of Israel in Babylon. These false prophets telling lies to God's people and leading them away from God's truth. Listen to a few excerpts from Jeremiah. He writes, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not seen them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. They lead my people astray with their reckless lies, and they are evil. Sound a little bit like our situation in Acts 3 so far? And there's more. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah about what will happen to these false and lying prophets. This is what the Lord says about Shemaiah the Nehalamite, which means sorcerer, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, even though I didn't send him and has led you to believe a lie, this is what the Lord says. I will surely punish Shemaiah the sorcerer and his descendants and people like him. He will have no one left among my people, nor will he see, nor will he see the good things I will do for my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against me concerning the lying prophets. Their path will become slippery. They will be banished to darkness, and they will fall. Does it sound a little like Acts 13? What happens to Elimas? Paul says to him, because of your lies, you're going to be blind. And immediately Luke writes, darkness came over him. Now, I can't prove it to you. It's only a hunch. It's my opinion. But here's my opinion. Paul, an absolute expert of experts in the Hebrew Scriptures, in my opinion, he immediately caught the connection between the situation that Jeremiah faced with Shemaiah the sorcerer and the situation that he, Paul, was facing with Bar-Jesus, Elimas the sorcerer. And because Paul knew and believed God's words in Scripture so well and so deeply, he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God had promised today when the lying prophets would be punished with darkness. And so Paul abruptly turns to Elimas and really just proclaims God's words over him, God's punishment of darkness. And his prophecy, God's promise of a time when false prophets would be punished with darkness, among other things, come true that day in Paphos on the island of Cyprus when Elimas, a lying prophet, is cast into darkness. How do you suppose the Jews of Cyprus reacted to all that, to that story? Let me assure you, they knew the prophecy of Jeremiah. And note where Cyprus is. Where in relation to Israel is this unusually large population of Jews? 
Look how close to Israel. You think that's a coincidence that a lot of Jews chose to pack on an island really close to the promised land? Or do you suppose that maybe all these Jews are packed into Cyprus because they believe what God promised in the Old Testament and they want to be as close as possible to God's promised land so they can quickly reclaim it when the Messiah comes and gives it back to them and takes it away from the Romans? That's such a Jewish thing to do. They are so desperate for wanting their land back. Still are today. Even Jesus' disciples... Do you remember the last question those disciples asked him before Jesus ascended? You think of all the things they could have asked him. Do you remember like the last thing they asked him on the top of Mount Olives before he ascended? Who remembers? They asked him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jews lived for that day. And into that expectation and hope, On the island of Cyprus, right next to the promised land, comes this guy, Paul. And the book of Jeremiah replays itself. Prophecy comes true. That same Jeremiah that spoke to Jewish exiles in Babylon now speaks to these away from God's promised land in Cyprus. And that's the same book of Jeremiah where God promises immediately after this text of lying prophets being struck in darkness, God promises... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, to Israel. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This leads to my second point this morning. One thing about first century Jewish culture, one thing that's in that soil out of which Christianity grew is a fierce commitment to knowing the text. They knew the Scriptures. They knew them so well that whatever was going around them in life, immediately, whoa, that's just like... God's Word talks about. They knew them that well. That's the soil of our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knew Jeremiah like the back of his hand. I have little doubt when he looked around the room that day, saw what was going on with Elimas. In my opinion, at least, he saw Jeremiah happening all around him. And because he did, he was able to invoke God's words, not his words, but God's words, and call down darkness on that false prophet, Elimas, just like God promised. As we read together the rest of Acts, whenever we study in the New Testament, look for me, will you? Look with me for connections to the stories of the Old Testament. They're literally everywhere. Providing further testimony of God's sovereignty and goodness and love and faithfulness and power. And proclaiming even more loudly that Jesus is indeed the Christ. The Messiah that God promised since at least Genesis chapter 3. We'll look even more closely at some of those Old and New Testament connections next week when Paul spells out a lot of them when he teaches in Pisidian Antioch. On Cyprus that day, I picture many Jews 
on Cyprus, when they heard that story of the encounter between Elimas and Paul, they went home leaping with joy. Why? Perhaps a young boy or girl burst into the house after hearing the Elimas-Paul confrontation. Mom, Dad, you'll never guess what I just heard. This guy, Paul, studied under Gamaliel. This guy, Paul, he was with Barnabas. Remember him? That big Levite with the equally big encouraging smile. And they were talking with proconsul Sergius Paulus. And they were talking to him about a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. No, no, really. Nazareth. Named Yeshua. Jesus. And then Alimas was there. A spooky guy. And he tried to interfere. And you should have seen it, Mom and Dad. Paul went all Jeremiah on him. Paul made Elimas blind. He said, you're going to be blind. And boom. He was in darkness. He was groping around like this. Just like that. God's promise made in Jeremiah came true again today. I saw it. It came true. God is keeping His promise. Always keeping His promise. The kingdom is indeed being restored to His people through this Yeshua who's the Messiah. And guess what? The kingdom now is not just going to include Jews. It's going to include Everybody that has believed, that believes we're going to have to build a bigger synagogue. And let me tell you what Paul said about Yeshua of Nazareth. Oh, before I do that, I almost forgot. Even proconsul Paulus believed the Roman. Can you believe it? Holy Moses, do you think, do you think the proconsul will come to synagogue this weekend? Or something like that. All because they knew Scripture when they saw it happening around them. They could dance that God's promise was still being kept. One, the roots of Christianity are Jewish to the core. Two, the roots of Christianity cherish intimate knowledge of Scripture, which in turn leads to a deeper understanding of God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Last, what else can we learn about bringing the kingdom of God to the world? Look with me again, please, at verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. At first glance, it might seem something like the proconsul standing over there. He's invited Barnabas and Paul to talk to him. And the proconsul then observes Paul going all Jeremiah on Elimas. And it's like, whoa, it's getting heated. And maybe the proconsul, you know, he kind of, his eyes kind of flick to the centurion standing close by. The centurion gives a nod, takes a step forward just in case. Because Paul says some pretty stinging things, yes? And then as Sergius Paulus watches, Paul gets to the part, and God's hand is against you, and you're going to be blind. And this Roman looks at, sees Elimas go, and he starts groping around. Would someone give me their hand, please? Like, now, one way to read the text is, as soon as that Roman sees you know, someone in his presence striking someone blind, that Roman says, whoa, I believe. <laughs> 
Please don't strike me blind too. I don't think that's the best application, interpretation of this text. Here's why. Look at it closely with me. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. The best reading then of this text, in my opinion, seems to be that signs and wonders together with teaching is crucial to Christian witness. We need both. Did you notice in our text this morning that Sergius Paulus is described as an intelligent man? What an interesting detail for Luke to include. Contrary to what the world would have us think, intelligent people accept Jesus as Lord and Savior too. Amen? Amen? Now, if there's one thing that is going to open the heart of an intelligent man, an intelligent person... It's something that his intelligence can't explain. I think that's the purpose of the signs and wonders parts of our witness. Signs and wonders take us beyond our intellect. Our intellect can't explain them. And once beyond that fortress of intellect only, at least, signs and wonders are able to speak directly into our hearts, more than our heads. Signs and wonders open our hearts. We're filled with things like overwhelming wonder and awe and wow, if that's an emotion. And then into that good soil of a dumbfounded and stirred heart, the teaching of the Word of God can take root there. And people come to believe in Jesus and dedicate their all-out living and obedience lives to Him. Churches, it seems to me, can often struggle with this balance between signs and wonders and teaching. For example, a criticism I often hear directed toward our more charismatic brothers and sisters is that, well, you know, they're all about the signs and wonders, and there's not much solid teaching about the Word of God going on there. And a criticism directed at our more conservative churches, yeah, well, you know, the conservative churches, you're all about teaching, teaching, teaching. Words, words, words. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. But then, you know, you never open yourselves up to the very real and action-oriented power of the Holy Spirit. Probably, like most criticisms, both go too far. But there may be some truth to each at the edges, which, of course, is why we need each other. We need to balance between signs and wonders and teaching the Word of God. We need both, and it's sad that we tend to divide denominationally along those lines. Signs and wonders and teaching together were designed to go hand in hand as God's one-two punch of proclaiming the gospel. I know what many of you are thinking. You might be thinking, but pastor, I can't do signs and wonders. I have tried to strike people blind many times. I can't do it. And it never works. Back um, before we were married, when Jill and I were dating, we went with um, a couple of friends down to Disney. This is when Jill and I were like just friends. But, you know, soon it would be true love. But anyway, before it was that. And we went down to Disney, and I'll never forget. I, this came to me this week, and I thought, wow, I still remember this. On the way home, 
driving the car. We stopped at a gas station, and I um, pumped gas in the car. And as I'm sitting there, Jill and the other friends get out, and they're trying to give me money for the gas. And I knew that they, a couple of them at least, they didn't have much left, and you know, it was a long way to go yet. They needed something to eat. I had some money left. God had blessed me with that. So I said, no, let me. I will get this. And I will never forget what you told me, Joe. She said to me, she said, Todd, you, are, you have one of the most generous spirits that I've ever been around. And I told her, boy, you've got to get out more if you think I'm... No, I didn't tell her. <laughs> that touched me deeply. And then later when she met my mom and dad who are here visiting from Holland, Michigan today, wave. Um, later when she met and got to know them, she said to me, Boy, Todd, I see where you get it from. She was a sign and wonder to me that day. Just a simple compliment, a simple affirmation. Don't you tell me that you can't do signs and wonders. You have got the God of the universe living in and among you. You know what that makes you, by definition? You are signs and wonders. To the person next to you, say, hello, sign and wonder of God. Go ahead. you tell me you can't do signs and wonders? Every time you give a kid who's thirsty a drink of water, that is a sign and wonder. Every time you think of someone else beside yourself and put them first, even when you shouldn't and you deserve it, that's a sign and wonder. In a word, it's love. There we are, back again. Love God and love others. When you love like that, when you are a sign and wonder, when you go out of your way to smooth someone else's path, when you lay down your life, you boggle the intellect of the world just by choosing to be a Christian. What in the world would you do that for? The world says. Why would you live for us? Why are you being so nice to me? And the, the intellect goes, Ugh. do that on the way home. Ugh. And right there, the sign and wonder, maybe for an instant, maybe over time as you develop relationships, you have standing with that person, whether they want it or not, to answer that question, what's with the sign and wonder and love on me? And you can say something like, let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. Signs and wonders and teaching together is deeply embedded in that Jewish soil from which Christianity grew. Jews in particular, that culture, high on hospitality. Huge. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why God chose for Jesus to be born there. He wanted Jesus as a boy growing up 
to understand hospitality and what it meant to love his neighbor as himself. Jesus got that lesson, didn't he? (laughs) Be a sign and wonder to the world and teach them about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for reminding us where it was we come from. Thank you for reminding us that our roots are every bit as rooted in the entire story of God and your people. Father, thank you for reminding us to see things around us in life as acting out and living out from your words and scripture. Help us to recognize those connections. Help us to see through what things seem to what's really going on in the spiritual realm and in the name of Jesus around us. And Father, help us to love. And when hearts melt because of lives given and sacrificed to others, help us to plant that story of Jesus there for your spirit to water. Help us to have the guts and the love to tell them about what God has done for us, about what you have done for us, Father. We love you, and we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for sharing our Labor Day. Thank you for sharing your Labor Day holiday with us. I hope you have a great Monday off. As always, if you'd like someone to pray with you or for you, there'll be some right down here at front. Don't be shy. Come and say hi. God bless you as you go.